At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Tonight on The Readout. Claiming you have money that you do not have does not amount to the art of the deal. It's the art of the steal. One year after New York Attorney General made New York's Attorney General made those remarks, Donald Trump is in court on trial to determine what price he should pay for the massive fraud he has committed for years. Plus, Trump's increasing threat to democracy. He's attacking judges and threatening to lock up America's district attorneys. The authors of How Democracies Die join me. Also tonight, one of the most hated members of Congress, Matt Gates, just might have the power to take down Kevin McCarthy unless Democrats come to Kevin's rescue. But will they? Hmm. But we begin tonight with Donald Trump and New York Attorney General Letitia James, together for the first time in a New York City courtroom. Today was the first day of the civil fraud trial over charges that Trump, along with his two adult sons and his business, grossly inflated the value of his assets for years. Attorney General James, who has not was not arguing the case today, did have a front row seat. Presiding is Judge Arthur N. Goron who just last week delivered the bombshell ruling finding Trump liable for fraud, claiming that Trump's defenses of his real estate valuations were based in, quote, a fantasy world. The trial is expected to last until just before Christmas, with six more cases, six more causes of action to be determined about the scope of the fraud, with a focus on the intent by Trump, his family members and business associates to commit the fraud. In their opening statement, the prosecution said that they have the receipts to prove that the defendants made these false declarations to intentionally defraud the banks and insurance companies. The prosecutors used some of the depositions with Don Jr., Eric, and former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg to make that point. Trump's lawyers are holding to their claims that not only is Trump nothing less than a super successful and wealthy real estate developer tycoon, but that there could not have been any intent to defraud because there was no fraud, no false statements, and no such thing as an objective valuation of a property. And while Trump is not expected to be present throughout the trial, he, along with Don Jr., Ivanka, and Eric, are on the witness list. And we do expect to see them testify at some point under oath. Beyond the $250 million in penalties that New York AG Letitia James is seeking, this trial could also likely put an end to the entire Trump organization in New York. It will also completely shatter whatever remains of the myth of Trump as an extremely wealthy and successful businessman. You know, the original big lie that helped propel him into the White House in 2016. That point has not been lost on Trump, who was lashing out once again at the judge and the attorney general in this case. We have a rogue judge, a racist attorney general who's a horror show. This judge is a politician and he should be investigated for what he's done. These are corrupt people we're dealing with, the most corrupt people. When you have a radical left attorney general like Letitia James, who's a disgrace to our country, this rogue judge, a 
Trump hater. He's a Democrat operative. This judge should be disbarred. He should be allowed to be a judge. That police officer is everyone right now. Joining me now is NBC's Adam Reese, who's in the courtroom today. Tim O'Brien, senior executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion, and Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security and co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Uh, Adam Reese, I was noting the uh, the police officer at the front and was standing in the foreground in that in that image. He, he was holding his composure very well, but uh, you could kind of almost see what was going on inside of his, of his mind. Um, what was going on in the courtroom? Give us sort of the color of the courtroom and Donald Trump's demeanor, because he seemed angry. He was very angry. And, Joy, as you just heard, there was no love loss between Donald Trump and Attorney General Letitia James and, for that matter, Judge Angoran. When Mr. Trump came into the courtroom numerous times, he totally avoided Letitia James making eye contact. She also avoided him. She looked away, looked to her left as he came in from the right. He seemed angry at times, agitated. He was repeatedly uh, consulting with his attorneys on both sides of him. He looked beat red at times, heated. He was looking at a particular article. Um, when uh, the final and first witness, rather, took the stand, he really was taking issue with a lot of what he was saying. But the opening statements were more of the same from both sides. A lot of what we have heard uh, in all of the lead up to this trial, the prosecution saying all of Trump's properties here in New York were overvalued. We're not just talking about a couple million here or there. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. He overestimated his net worth anywhere between 800 and 2.2 billion dollars. The defense came up. They said he is a incredibly successful businessman. These are trophy properties. No one got hurt. In fact, the banks made some hundred million dollars. The insurers weren't hurt. The first witness, as I mentioned, Donald Bender, Trump's longtime uh, accountant at Mazars, he testified to a lot of detailed accounting throughout the afternoon. But at the very end of the day, Judge Angoran said, you know, a lot of this 2011 valuations seem to be redundant and we could be wasting our time, at which point Trump jumped up with a double thumbs up. And his attorney, Chris Kyes, said, I couldn't agree with you more, Judge. <laughs> what a circus. Uh, let, let, let me let me just play just to re remind everyone what, why we're here. Uh, this is Michael Cohen. Uh, this was him testifying in 2019 uh, to Congress. And this is what led to this case happening at all. To your knowledge, did the president or his company ever inflate assets or revenues? Yes. To your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to an insurance company? Yes. Do you know, to your knowledge, was the president interested in reducing his local real estate bills, tax bills? Yes. And how did he do that? What you do is you deflate the value of the asset, and then you put in a request to the tax department uh, for a deduction. And uh, was that done with the president's knowledge or direction? Everything was done with the knowledge and at the direction of Mr. Trump. 
That is why we are here, Tim O'Brien. And that gentleman uh, is going to be testifying, Michael Cohen, who was Donald Trump's lawyer, you know, for a long time, more than a decade. Also, we'll be testifying as somebody that you told me the name of and that I, you know, I didn't watch The Apprentice, so I didn't know who he was. Alan Weisselberg, who we have some <laughs> VO of him. I think he was on The Apprentice once on t- in 2006. He was Trump's business guy. And you, you know a lot about him. So those are going to be two of the main witnesses besides Trump's kids. Um, and you, you would know probably better than anyone else. They know what he did. Alan Weisselberg and Michael Cohen both have been to prison because of Donald Trump. Um, so they know what they're talking about. And Weisselberg, to stay out of prison, has got to tell the truth. Your thoughts, Tim? Well, I'll tell you a little story about Alan Weisselberg, Joy. I went over to Trump Tower in 2005 when Donald was asserting that the total value of all of his holdings were $6 billion. And I had sources around him who knew his finances intimately that said it was a fraction of that amount, well less than a billion dollars. So when I went to visit with Alan Weisselberg, the point of the exercise was for them to go through all of his assets and prove to me that it added up to $6 billion. And I was there for most of an afternoon. Alan was sitting across the table from me with a yellow legal pad. Actually, we're sitting in chairs facing one another. He gave me all the valuations. At the end of it, I took out my calculator and I added it up. And I said, Alan, this only adds up to $5 billion. And he looked perplexed for a minute and he goes, I'm going to go to my office. And I'm going to find that other billion. <laughs> and that's basically how these guys rolled day to day forever. Trump inflated his wealth because he is a deeply insecure person about his own business prowess and his own track record. He saw it as a scorecard that he used to compare himself to other wealthy people in the United States. That's why he always lobbied Forbes, try to be at the top of their list. But it also served a business purpose, as we know. It, it, it put him in front of bankers who might not otherwise have been dealing with him. And, and he got away with that for a long time because I think the media treated it like a game. Law enforcement didn't see any harm in it. And, and bankers during a certain period of time, I think, were afraid to take him on because he would savage them in the press. Uh, ultimately, they just all washed their hands of him after because he was a serial bankruptcy artist and he did not make good on a number of these loans, you know, multi-billion dollar loans he never paid back um, and walked away from him. And I think what you're seeing in this courtroom right now is decades of this. You know, Donald Trump started doing this in the 1970s. Uh, he's a 77 year old man who is finally being held to account for behavior that he got away with for a long time because no one cared until he became president. And and I think uh, all of this amounts to an unraveling of, of his family's business roots in New York. I don't think he's going to stay in business in New York. I think fraud is a foregone conclusion right now. The judge has already ruled on this. All we're talking about now are the kind of the scale of the penalties that are going to be assessed against him. And he is not acting like someone who thinks he has a good story to tell. He is acting like someone who's cornered and caged and afraid, and he's lashing out at the judge, and he's lashing out at Letitia James. And and I think it's because he feels he's got nowhere else to go. I, I think the other thing to be cognizant of is he rose to fame and public attention around this idea that he was a self-made entrepreneurial genius, and then he became a television celebrity. He is tra- He's a shapeshifter, and he has now transitioned away from being a businessman into being the leader of a political cult. And I think when yeah. he's making these appeals in the courtroom, it's not as a businessman. He's trying to appeal to his political base because he knows he's already had it in this courtroom, I think. 
You know, and, and you're absolutely right. The fabulism is, is, is happening even now, Mary. I mean, Alina Haba got up today and again said that Donald Trump is, he said Trump is now uh, very, he, he was very engaged. This is the New York Times reporting of it. Trump was now very engaged. This is in court as Haba, one of his lawyers, makes her presentation. She said his golf course at Doral, Doral Florida and his Mar-a-Lago estate would both sell for more than a billion dollars, repeating the false valuations Trump listed on the documents submitted to the banks. Trump seemed pleased. He's watching her intently, occasionally nodding in agreement. The judge then confronts Haba, saying, wait a minute, he made no property valuations in his summary judgment, but he referenced the documents provided that did, that said not even close to a billion dollars would any of these properties be worth. She gets up, Mary, and, and does it again, and does it. And then he gets up and complains that he doesn't have a jury trial. The same woman, Alina Haba, is who signed the paper saying he wanted a judge-only trial. His own lawyers chose to go before a judge, not a jury. And now he's out here trying to make his cult following believe that he's being wronged because it doesn't have a jury trial. Your thoughts? Well, you know, I guess maybe he made that decision before uh, Judge Goran ruled against him, right? So now he's uh, singing a different tune. I thought it was pretty remarkable when I read about um, Attorney Haba getting up and making some of the statements she made. And I think she prefaced it by saying, I wasn't going to say anything, but after I heard the Attorney General speaking, I decided to, to speak. I think you're exactly right. He's using this trial now, and I think that's why he attended today. He's using it essentially as part of his political campaign. He's fundraising off of it. You know, he sent out a statement this morning attacking the attorney general, attacking the judge, attacking this as political persecution, seeking assistance. And we know from all of the other cases against him, he does use, use these for fundraising. He also is using, I think that the reason he was so pleased by what Haba had to say is because, again, it was just, it was more and more of the same types of things that he says outside of the courtroom. And, you know, that just plays to his base and he thinks he's he's running for office at this trial. I don't think we'll see him there every day. Uh, there's just too many days to come, but that seems to be what he's intending to do. It's also remarkable that, you know, while he has pending in one of his criminal cases, a motion for limited restrictions on his speech because of threats that he has made against the prosecutors and the judges and witnesses uh, that he would start the day off with so many social media posts and public statements disparaging and attacking the judge and the attorney general in this very case. This is a man who just absolutely positively 100% of the time thinks the law doesn't apply to him and he can do whatever he wants. And I think Tim makes a great point. It's all starting to come crashing down on him, but he has not brought himself to that reality yet and still seems to think that if he, you know, just keeps up with the lies, the lies, the lies, the lies, that he'll get past this. And one other comment I would make when when I think it was Tim talking the, about the banks just kind of going along with things for a number of years, it reminds me of his supporters, including those on Capitol Hill right now, who have just been going along as sycophants to Mr. Trump. And will they, like the banks, ever decide to put some distance? between themselves and Trump. And that remains to be seen, but the time is sure as heck is now. 
Well, the, I, I wouldn't count on it. I wouldn't hold my breath. Tim, I'm gonna, the last question to you. Donald, the, here are the people who are upcoming. Donald Bender, who's a partner at Mazars. These are witnesses. Cameron Harris, the CPA uh, at Whitley Penn. Jeffrey McCani, who's this SVP and controller of the Trump Organization. And of course, Mr. Weisselberg, Alan Weisselberg. And there's another guy named Patrick Bernie, assistant VP for financial organ- operations. You're the one who told me about Weisselberg. Who on that list should we be looking out for their testimony? Um, I, well, Bender is obviously pivotal. He signed off on all of the accounting statements for years. And Jeff McConney matters because he was one of the decision makers in Trump in the Trump organization, which was neither an organization nor a very big company. It was a handful of people doing what Donald Trump told them to do. And I think Donald Trump's world has one way streets in terms of loyalty. He expects it, but he doesn't give it. And I think when People get prosecuted and their own well-being is at stake and their own livelihood. You're going to start to see them understand that that loyalty in Donald Trump's world will only get them in trouble. And I think you might start to see people flip profoundly so. I mean, you can just ask uh, Alan Weisselberg and Michael Cohen how that loyalty works out for you, because they're the ones who ended up doing time. Adam Reese, Tim O'Brien, Mary McCord, thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, if you think Trump's rant outside the courtroom today sounded completely unhinged, you have got to hear some of the dangerous rhetoric he was spouting in the days leading up to it. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The American people must protect each other. They must ensure that they treat each other with civility and kindness, listen to opposing views, argue as vociferously as they want, but refrain from violence and threats of violence. That's the only way this democracy will survive. It is alarming to think just how normalized political violence has become, where you have leaders like U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland getting visibly emotional about the state of our democracy. At the epicenter, of course, is Donald Trump, a man whose war path is marked with threats of violence, both veiled and explicit. Here's a sampling from just this past Friday. If you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you are leaving that store. Shot. I will direct a completely overhauled DOJ to investigate every radical DA and AG in America for their illegal, racist, and reverse enforcement of the law. We'll stand up to crazy Nancy Pelosi who ruined San Francisco. How's her husband doing, by the way? Anybody know? 
and the crowd goes wild, which at times is actually more disturbing than what their dear leader says. But today we saw a different type of rant by a very livid Trump, which eerily echoed what he said on January 6th. This is a horrible thing that's happening to our country, and we've got to get it straightened away. So we'll go in and see our rogue judge, and we'll listen to this man. And uh, I think most people get it. Somebody has to fight, because if you don't fight, our country is just going to go down the tube. This is election interference. This guy's a highly partisan person, and we can't let this stuff happen. Joining me now are Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, Harvard University professors of government and co-authors of How Democracies Die and the new book, Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Daniel, I will start with you. Um, the reason Merrick Garland was getting so emotional is he has family members who died in the Holocaust and he has a, a family memory. He has a residual memory uh, that we should all have about how these things can go. Donald Trump, I was arguing on social media, was doing what can only be described as the kind of talk we heard in the 1930s in Germany and in the United States. He just does that now. And to me, what is even more disturbing than the fact that he just blatantly, he seems to really just enjoy talking about people getting shot. He loves saying people are going to get shot. He loves the idea. It's the crowd. Those are lynching sounding crowd. They are excited by the idea of violence, just as excited as he is. Your thoughts? Yeah, you're absolutely right that really there's a cardinal rule of democracy. To be a, a politician or political leader committed to democracy, very simple set of rules. You have to accept elections, win or lose. You have to not use violence or threats of violence to gain power and to hold on to power. And here's the third element, Joy. It's not the crowd, and the crowd is scary. But what's also critical is if you're a mainstream politician or party elite, you have to condemn this stuff. And what's not happening today is the Republican Party leadership is silent in the face of these kinds of outrageous statements. And that, in our, in our own studies, we lay this out in our book, this is what ultimately gets democracy into trouble is when mainstream allies enable this kind of behavior. Right. I mean, Steve, they said nothing when he was running in 2016 and encouraged his crowds to beat up protesters on site. He's doing this whole thing about how all the people who are prosecuting him are racist in reverse. Very clear signal to white uh, Americans who are unhappy with the state of our demographics that this is about him being white and not about him being a criminal with 91 counts. And he, did, he does another thing. The America first thing. Um, I want to play this for you because he, he the, the America, Make America Great Again, which is his slogan, he says a thing about it that is just not true, but is also revelatory. Let me let's let's let you listen to him. MAGA, Make America Great Again, America First. This is the greatest political institution ever in the history of our country. There's never been a movement like this. Oh, yeah, yeah, there has. Let's put up Charles Lindbergh and the 1940s Nazi sympathizers. They were also called Make America First. Make America First. They were pro-Nazi. They were pro-Germany. Uh, they had no problem with what Germany was doing. And, uh, you know, they were cool with the Klan. Donald Trump's own father was arrested after a Klan riot in Queens in 1927. So he's got a little Klan sympathy in-house. Donald Trump saying Make America First is the greatest move in American history. It is ironic that he actually, in a way, is referencing the 1940s movement, because his movement ain't that different. Your thoughts? No, you're right. We argue in our book that the principal driver of the MAGA movement and, and this authoritarian turn by a, a major faction, dominant faction now in the Republican Party, is uh, a reaction to this country's uh, slow but very real transition to 
multiracial democracy. This is a big transition we're going through in this country. It's not, there, there really is no case of any democracy in the world in which a once dominant ethnic majority lost not only its numerical majority, but lost its dominant status in society. That's a big deal. And uh, in the book, we argue that that is ultimately what is fueling the radicalization of the MAGA movement. And Daniel, I mean, it's it's literal, right? Because January 6, 2021, what happened was they lost an election because seven out of the last eight times in the popular vote, Republicans have lost the election because they rely solely almost on white voters who are white and rural, whereas more, you know, college educated white voters, younger white voters and almost all minority voters, two thirds to 80 percent vote the other way. Or in the case of African-Americans, 90 percent vote the other way. They can't win elections and therefore they only trust Trump to save them. Here is a couple of polls. Seventy one percent when asked by CBS YouGov, who do they trust the most? Trump more than they trust their own friends and family, more than they trust even conservative media, more than they trust religious leaders. One more uh, note here. The percentage of Americans who believe that violence might be necessary, it's high. One in five. Your thoughts. In order for them yeah, to, to rule, to have, they need violence. Yeah, to, to have a functioning democracy, uh, we need two political parties. I mean, there's no democracy in the world that can survive for long in a stable fashion without two political parties committed to democracy. And two political parties that can viably win majorities of the vote. And currently, we have a system in which that's not increasingly not the case. And you mentioned that, you know, the recent electoral college, the disjunction between electoral college and popular vote. And one of the things that we think is driving this radicalization is that the Republican Party can increasingly win power without winning majorities because of the bias of our institutions, the Electoral College, the Senate, and the judiciary. And the combination of these institutions are, in a sense, stunting the Republican Party's ability to, to reach out to, to a diverse range of voters that exist in America today. And it's driving the party and leading the party to double down on this radicalizing ideology. And so that, that's a great danger, of course, for all of us. And Steve, then that's an excellent point. We're going to talk uh, with Ellie Mastal uh, coming up soon. And one of his proposals is get rid of the Electoral College, because it is a good point. You know, I mean, no one actually is paying attention to voters in Idaho because it's not a swing state. No one pays any attention to them. They know they're going to vote red and they don't care. Arkansas voters, same thing. Nobody's going to Arkansas during elections. Could getting rid of the Electoral College help to de-radicalize the Republican Party, in your view? It would make a difference. Um, I mean, first of all, it is just inherently unfair in any system in the world for the loser of a presidential election to win the presidency. Every other presidential democracy on the face of the earth that once had an electoral college has gotten rid of it for that reason, has adopted direct presidential elections, leaving the United States as the only presidential democracy in which it's possible for the loser of a presidential election to to win. Uh, but yeah, as Daniel said, if the Republicans actually had to win national majorities, if they had to win more votes than the Democrats to capture the presidency, to retain power, they would either have to broaden their appeal. They would have to to uh, to avoid some of these crazy shenanigans that they've they've engaged in or they would lose big. But right now they're still they, they can they can have both because they know they can win with 47, 48 percent of the vote. So, yeah, getting getting rid of the Electoral College ought to be a top priority for Americans. It's a major step towards catching up to other democracies in the world. And we've actually, people forget, we came really close to eliminating the Electoral College in 1969. Both parties favored it. President Nixon favored it. It had an overwhelming majority in the House, had a majority in the Senate, but just fell 
just short of two thirds of votes in the in the Senate. So it's not a crazy idea to abolish the Electoral College. Every other democracy's done it. I, I would argue do that and automatic voter registration at age 18 for every citizen, which would mean you can't do voter suppression in that way. Everyone could register would change a whole lot. Uh, Stephen Levitsky, Daniel Ziblatt, thank you both very much. And please come back. Up next, breaking news, MAGA Republican Congressman Matt Gates has just followed through on his threat to trigger a vote to take the speakership away from poor Kevin McCarthy. That's next. Just moments ago, Florida Congressman Matt Gates did what he's been threatening to do, and that is to attempt to fire Speaker Kevin McCarthy from his job. The gentleman will state the form of his resolution. Declaring the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives to be vacant. Resolved that the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives is hereby declared to be vacant. This comes after a dramatic but unsurprising reversal by Speaker McCarthy this weekend, who, relying on Democrats, narrowly avoided a government shutdown by passing a short-term funding measure. Despite bipartisan support, additional aid to Ukraine was not included in that bill. The short-term bill passed with all but one Democrat supporting it and with 90 Republicans opposed, something Speaker McCarthy seemed to forget when he talked to CBS on Sunday. Most of it in the press probably thought we would have shut down yesterday, too. But no, we did, did not. Were you confident we wouldn't shut down? I was confident I could get something on the floor to make sure the option that we would not. But that you were sure pass. Well, well, I wasn't sure it was going to pass. You want to know why? Because the Democrats tried to do everything they can not to let it pass. They did Democrats were the ones who voted did you, for this. Did you? But you see, Kevin has to lie. Because if you're a Republican, you can't work with the Democrats for the good of the country. You get in trouble doing that. Joining me now is Cornell Belcher, Democratic pollster and strategist and MSNBC political analyst. Oh, Cornell. Uh, so they, so <laughs> let's talk about this, because first of all, this seems like a bunch of BS to me. Uh, this guy, Matt Gates, has said he's going to that, you know, it took him 15 times to get to be speaker. I'm happy to keep doing this again and again and again until I get it. He can't do that without Democrats. Right. I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but I can do math. He needs 218 votes. He's got right now three who are so far. a Yes. Uh, I've heard tell he might have 47. That ain't 218. How does he vacate the speakership without Democrats getting on board? Well, it doesn't look like he can. And, you know, there's an old adage that I know you know well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I'm not so sure in this case that that's true for Democrats. And and what some of the reporting coming out that now, because Matt Gates is not your friend. Some of the reporting coming yeah. out now is that, um, you know, what kind of deal can Democrats cut to help save Speaker McCarthy? So I think it actually ultimately puts Democrats in a in a stronger uh, position than otherwise they would be to negotiate with the speaker in order for the speaker to stay speaker. It, it's it's remarkable because, right, the reporting you're hearing is that Pelosi, uh, Speaker Emeritus Pelosi is saying, don't help him. He, he's weak. Leave him alone. But then you've got some ruminations that maybe some progressive Democrats might break and say, OK, we'll support a motion to vacate in order for something in exchange. But what could what could Matt Gates offer? What is he going to offer? You know what I mean? You know, the numbers he, of some teenagers, if you want to date in Florida, like what, what does he have to offer Democrats? He doesn't have anything to offer. And, and but this is part part and partial of the problem. And, and hopefully Americans who are looking in on this see that these people are not serious about governing. 
and that this has just been, this is one catastrophe, one crisis after another, because they're not serious about, about, about governing. You know, you reported going into the midterm election, Joy, you know, they campaigned on inflation and crime and border security. And I don't know, uh, Joy, I have not seen or heard a lot about their crime bill or their policy, their bills to, to, to tackle inflation. I have seen a lot about you know, uh, Hunter Biden and yeah. and, and, sh- and shutting down the government. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, Me, exactly. And meanwhile, the, the actual thing that is happening is that Speaker McCarthy's trying to sound like a tough guy now, um, that there is an ethics investigation against Gates. What are the chances that, and that is for alleged, you know, maybe sexually trafficking a teenager, which he denies, maybe some drug uh, use and, and, and some nefarious things regarding drugs, et cetera. So they're, 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 they're taking witnesses. What are the chances that he's the one who gets kicked out? I think pretty good. I mean, it's, <laughs> again, you know, if you come for the king, you, you better get him. Uh, and I think there's a, yeah, (laughs) even if the king is extremely weak, (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't, it doesn't matter. He still has office powers. If if nothing else, uh, he might find himself in, in, in a, in an office, uh, outside of the Capitol, right? He still has power (laughs) as as speaker to, to do harm to this guy. Put him in the basement. Okay, let's talk about somebody who actually uh, is the king in a, in a way. Uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, he did make good on his promise to appoint a black woman uh, to the United States Senate. It, and it was a surprise. Um, what do we make of this? LaFonza Butler, um, she is uh, she was a, 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 an ally and advisor to Kamala Harris when she was running for president. You know, he did it, uh, but it's not Barbara Lee. And a lot of people are not excited, not thrilled about that. What do you make of this choice? Well, a couple of things. One, you know, full transparency. I have worked with Lavanza in the past, uh, and I, I think she's extraordinary. And, you know, don't take it from me. Uh, the statement by by Mayor Bass that, you know, this is someone who's worked for working people all her lives. And she, and, you know, and she supports her. It, she, she's a fabulous uh pick for this. But also, let's let's take a look at the politics. Look, Joy, I know a lot of people, um, some people have problems with it. And look, I, I've heard Congressional Black Caucus and they put they were pushing for for Congresswoman Lee and, 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 and understandably so. But at the same time, side of politics, I can't knock Gavin for this one. Right. He picked someone who the, the women's community, the gay and lesbian rights community, and a large share of the African-American community says, you can't knock this. You can't knock this pick. And at the same time, so you, so you pull back some of that criticism that will come from the pick. And at the same time, look, it is tough for, for the governor. And, and again, I, I have no I have no dealings with, the, with Governor Newsom, but it's tough for the governor politically to pick someone who is currently running because then right. he really puts his hand on 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 the on the balance for for someone. So. I think it was a tough. I think it was a tough call for him to politically not pick Barbara Lee, given the, the the pressure that Congressional Black Caucus was putting on him. But it is hard to argue with someone who's been fighting for the for working people's rights and for women's rights all their lives. And I should note that we just put up how much money each of the three candidates who are actually in the race running have raised. And Barbara Lee has, is way behind in terms of fundraising, two million. Adam Schiff, who is Nancy Pelosi's pick, has thirty two million dollars in the bank. LaFonza Butler, though, former SCIU. So she's a labor leader. She's the head of Emily's List, meaning Emily's List's money would be behind her if she decided to run for the seat. She is, she would be the first out 
uh, LGBTQ out lesbian member of the United States Senate for so many reasons. This was a chess move on the governor's <laughs> part. No, I mean, and she'll, and is it, there's nothing stopping her from running, right? Real quick. If she no, wants to run, it, it she can jump in this savvy. race. It was real savvy, but at the same time, when you look at her history, there's no history of her wanting to be out in front. She's a behind the, the scenes worker getting things done. I don't, you know, I've got no insider information. I just don't think she I don't think she wants to, to run for for Senate or she would have run for office before. Sure. Well, we can we found out from Diane Feinstein that once you get in there, you want to be there. <laughs> People like being a senator. They like it when they get there. We'll see what happens. Courtney <laughs> Thank you very much. Coming up, the Supreme Court is back in session with some momentous cases to decide. Oh, goody. With conservative members questionable ethics providing the massive elephant in the room. We'll be right back. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. The first Monday in October means the U.S. Supreme Court has begun its new term. And for the first time in anyone's memory, Justice Clara Thomas recused himself. It happened in an appeal from his wife, Ginny's email pen pal, John Eastman. Thomas's one-time clerk and former Trump legal advisor and indicted co-conspirator in the plot to overturn the 2020 election, a plot Ginny Thomas enthusiastically supported, if not participated in. Eastman asked the court to toss a lower court ruling allowing the House January 6th committee to see emails Eastman said were protected by attorney-client privilege. The court rejected Eastman's appeal. Justice Thomas did not explain his reasons for recusing this time after refusing to recuse himself in other cases involving January 6th, including one last year when Thomas was the lone dissenter as the court denied Donald Trump's request to stop the release of White House files concerning the attack. The justices have plenty more on their plate this term besides John Eastman's problems. Everything from abortion rights to gun rights to First Amendment protections and the power of the federal government. Question is, can the court's right-wing majority be trusted to rule on anything where the rights of the people versus the whims of big money are on the line? Joining me now to answer that question is Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation. I think I know your answer, but go ahead, give it to me anyway. Can they be trusted? Yeah, of course not. Yeah, of course the court can't be trust, trusted. As I explained in my in my preview piece in The Nation, this term is not about liberal versus conservatives or left versus right. This term is about conservatives fighting amongst each other about what version of pro-corporate, pro-Trump conservatism is going to be shoved down the rest of our throats against our will. The big cases this term, we're talking about Miss Pristone, we're talking about the abortion bill, which is really a fight about the future of contraceptives, because if you can get rid of the abortion pill on this scurrilous um, doctors who didn't take the abortion pill have aesthetic injuries, well, then you can get rid of contraceptives on the same 
rationale. This fight is going to be about uh, more of the United States, which is a case about the 16th Amendment and the government's power to tax. It's kind of about the repatriation tax under Donald Trump, but it's really about whether or not the Democrats can ever pass a wealth tax and have that be constitutional. So for all of these cases, you've mentioned a lot about Chevron deference. This is the case about whether or not um, executive agencies and their experts like at the SEC and the EPA will be making rules and regulations or whether unelected MAGA judges like Eileen Cannon and Matthew uh, Kaczmarek will be making critical decisions about regulations. All these cases do not pit liberals versus conservatives because liberals aren't allowed to bring cases in front of the Supreme right. Court. All of these cases pit kind of the nihilist wing of the conservative party versus the kind of normal operational Mitch McConnell wing of the Republican party. And liberals just have to kind of watch. And as I wrote, you know, we'll write a nice obituary for the people conservatives attack, but this isn't really about us. This is about the kind of family feud between the conservatives. And, and it also is about what is their level of shame. I mean, I was actually surprised that Clarence Thomas even recused himself because why should he? It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? We already know they're going to rule there can't be a wealth tax. I'm already assuming there's a case in which a woman whose boyfriend threatened to kill her, whether somebody who's a threat to a woman's life can get a gun. I'm assuming they're going to say, yes, they can have as many guns as they want and kill as many people as they want. I assume they're going to make Mifepristone illegal and probably all contraception illegal, right? And they're going to essentially say everything, uh, the, the Voting Rights Act is dead, the Civil Rights Act is dead. My question is, at what point does the court lose all of its legitimacy when they're essentially saying women cannot be protected from a murderous boyfriend, but if that murderous boyfriend gets them gets them pregnant, they have to give birth to the child because they also are not allowed to have contraception. Oh, I thought they lost all the legitimacy when they decided that guns have more rights than women. But for the rest of the country, it takes a long time for them to realize just how corrupt the Supreme Court is. And that is why I say to everybody watching, never let them tell you that journalism doesn't matter. Never let them tell you that activism and outreach and organization doesn't matter, because I promise you, even in this small John Eastman case, I promise you Clarence Thomas does not recuse himself as he absolutely should have because it was about a former clerk of his that's, as you say, but buddies with his wife, uh, Jenny. I promise you that doesn't recusal doesn't happen without ProPublica's reporting over the past yes. year. So even Absolutely. in this situation where we don't have a vote on these people, public pressure, public concern and transparency still matter. And that is my hope for that is my only hope with where we are with the Supreme Court is that intense yeah. public scrutiny. It's not going to bring Thomas back to heel. It's not going to bring Alito back to heel. But if you can get to Brett and Amy, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and make them understand that everybody is watching what they do. Everybody will be watching to see if Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett decide to give guns to domestic abusers, which will in turn lead directly to the murder of more women. Everybody's going to be watching that case and maybe intense public pressure and scrutiny, maybe good journalism will help those justices see their way clear to doing the yeah. right thing. Or John Roberts gets so embarrassed that he tries to, you know, hijack it in his own way. Um, last question. I, I brought this up with the guys who wrote How Democracies Die. And they, they agree with your premise that it's also in one of your nation pieces. If we just got rid of the Electoral College, it actually could cool off some of the Republican Party's madness um, because they would have to then compete in the larger population, not just with their MAGA base. 
What are the chances of actually doing that logistically of getting rid of the Electoral College? It's something that they pointed out even Nixon considered. Yeah, so I saw that segment, by the way, and they were absolutely right. The thing that we need to do to improve our country is to get rid of the anti-democratic forces in our country, which include things like the Electoral College. Unfortunately, you probably need a constitutional amendment, which requires three-fourths of the states to ratify it. There's also this idea about the National Voter Interstate Compact. That would involve Mm -hmm. states that compromise 270 electoral votes agreeing to uh, go with – throw their electoral votes to the person who wins the popular vote. I worry about that in the face of Trumpism and the legal challenges in the Supreme Court, um, whether or not that holds up. But look, things like constitutional amendments, again, this is where activism, organization and journalism become important because it's a long term strategy that if you employ it, I think not only helps the country, certainly helps the Republican Party from campaigning on beer cans as opposed to policies (laughs) that American people care about. Ellie Mistal, always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. The freedom to read is under attack. Let's do something about it, shall we? Take at least one action to defend books from censorship and to stand up for library staff, educators, writers, publishers, booksellers, and readers. No one person or organization can fight censorship alone. We all need to take action. That was the one and only LeVar Burton of Reading Rainbow and the chairman of this year's Banned Books Week, which focuses on the censorship crisis facing America. It's a topic we follow closely and we will continue to do so for all of Banned Books Week, starting with LeVar Burton himself, who joins me tomorrow night on The Readout. You don't want to miss it. And that is tonight's Readout. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.